Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover what it means to... (laughs) (laughs) That's one on me. Okay, dude. This is so so beautiful. We just need to keep this and go with this. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hmm. Hello, Kurt. Hey, Pep. Great to see you again this morning in your black camouflage. Love that. Thank you. You know, I went looking for this shirt and I couldn't find it, not because it's camouflage, (laughs) but because at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, I took it to the dry cleaner. goes to the dry cleaner right now because, you know, we're just wearing the same clothes all the yeah, time. It, it, so it just pajamas. What difference does it make? Right. So I found four new shirts <laughs> that are nicely pressed and, and ready to go. Oh. So this is, uh, this is our season two of the Being Known podcast. Um, and we are focusing on the nine degrees of integration, which is a real bummer for me because all of my preparation has been on the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> and it's, it turns out I'm completely wrong. Well, not only, I mean, not, I, not only know, about I, that, about, but it's, <laughs> it's actually nine domains. It's not just nine degrees. But we can. Oh, nine <laughs> domains, right. So now I'm so well. It's, it's not the six domains it's the of Kevin six Bacon. Six domains of Kevin Bacon. The <laughs> six domains of Kevin Bacon, which is a which is a much funnier <laughs> podcast. It's just not quite as informative. Oh gracious! <laughs> so, so the nine domains of integration, and um, if you haven't yet listened to the intro to this season, you know, go back and do that now. Even if you have, you might want to because it, it gives you sort of a um, a focused view on um, a bigger view of what integration is and why it's important. And last week we talked about consciousness, and today we're going to be talking about the vertical domain. But I think what people are really here to find out about today is to get an update on my Jeep <laughs> and whether or not I got my rearview mirror in place. I have been, and let me just tell been you, waiting all week, bro. So I took the Jeep into uh, D&D Truck Repair, which is, they're my guys, yeah. Donnie and Derek um, Tucker. Oh, D&D. They're, you know. That's- D&D, father and son, great guys, oh, awesome. great mechanics. So while it's there, I thought I'm going to get a tune-up. I'll get the mirror put on. And I have, as I told you, it's a 2002 Jeep. So I had those old halogen lights, oh, yeah. headlights yeah. that were like like somebody lit a match in there. And that's like as bright as they got, right? So so I, I bought these really awesome LED headlights. And, and they put those in while it was there. I picked the Jeep up yesterday. Figuring, you know, everything's integrated now. It's all working. All the domains. I pull out. All the domains are working. And uh, I pull into my neighborhood and I realize that the turn signals don't work. So (laughs) they put a new turn signal switch on for my headlights, but I no longer have turn signals. So I'm back to the old-fashioned arm out the window, up, you know, and out. So uh, later on this afternoon, I'm going to stop in and have the guys try again to get me fully integrated yeah. Yeah. in that. Jeep. So I have a question. So what do you do for a right-hand turn? I, I, this is, has, that was always puzzled me. Yes. Like, I, you can stick so, your arm out the left. What do you do? Yes. So, so straight out the left window yeah. is a left turn. Yeah. Bend that elbow up. Oh, just like a like bike. That, just like a cyclist. With the hand. 
Yes, yeah. same thing. Yeah. That's your right turn. And as if yeah. like anybody else who's coming behind you would know any have any idea what that means. They're like you're you're raising your hand. You for, do you're it. Raising your people, hand for a question. Like I have a, I have a, right. They wave yeah. at you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they drive by and wave. They just think you're being friendly. <laughs> oh my word! Oh, oh boy. It, isn't it so, Kirk? Oh, gosh. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So get us started on the vertical domain. Um, just jump in for us. Folks might wonder, like, what, what are we talking about, the vertical domain? And we, we use that phrase because we have, we have a horizontal domain that we'll get to eventually, and another domain that we talk about. But the vertical domain is really trying to point in the direction of the body. And we, we, start, we start this whole idea, first of all, um, before we even get to the neuroscience. We want to start with this whole notion that just... You know, it's, it's, of course, obvious to us that we have bodies. But, you know, when you think about what God did to make human beings, God could have just made us as bodiless creatures, I suppose. We, we could have had some sense of being in the world without having fingers and noses and elbows. We could have had, you know, there, there didn't need to be sex. There didn't need to be, you know... The, we, didn't, we didn't have to have the most beautiful man in the world that I get to talk to every week. We, <laughs> every week, bro, it's coming every week. We could have been bodiless, but instead, we read in the second chapter of Genesis, God says, and that, that God, he formed the man from the dust of the earth and he breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils and man became a living soul. This notion that God begins with bodies. We are dirt. We are in this way connected deeply to the earth and all the other formed material life on the planet. But God begins with bodies and he breathes his spirit into us. And if you take either one of those things away, if you take away the dirt, if you take away the breath, we stop being human. And so it is important as we, as we think about this domain, this first domain of consciousness that we talked about in our last episode of consciousness, that this idea that we are awake and alert and attuned, but attuned to what? And what is the mechanism that enables us to do any of that? Well, that mechanism is our body. It is our body that we are using to move throughout the world. It's our body that does all the sensing. I have my five senses coming to me from outside the world that I can smell and taste and see. And, and, but we also have senses that come to us from inside our bodies. Like my gut feeling about things isn't just a metaphor. It's something that I literally feel in my gut. So much of my world is really about what my body is experiencing. And we're going to talk later in this episode about what we've done with the body. But when we think about it from a neuroscience standpoint, from an interpersonal neurobiology perspective, the reason we call it the vertical domain, of course, is partially because we eventually we stand up on our own two feet, we stand vertically, we operate vertically, but we also think about a thing called the triune brain. Now, there is this phenomenon that we talk about, this triune brain, that when we, when we think about how the brain works, the very bottom of the, of the brain, you can picture the central nervous system. We have a spinal cord, and the spinal cord is taking in all of these senses that we feel, 
and the senses run up the spinal cord and it comes to the base of the brain, what we call the brain stem. And a guy by the name of Paul McLean, he, he was a, a neuroscientist that really talks about this idea McLean does talk about this idea that there are three parts, the triune brain, there is the brain stem that we have in common. It's very, very primitive. It's a part of our brain that functions very much like the brains of reptiles. It's a fight or flight mechanism. There's no thinking involved. There's no reflecting involved. It's just automatic. What am I going to, am I afraid I run away or I need to fight? But added to that, on top of that part of the brain is the second part of the brain that we talk about the limbic circuitry. And limbic circuitry, that fancy schmancy term, has to do with all of the neurons in our brain that have to do with emotion regulation. Those neurons out of which when they fire, we start to sense primary and secondary emotion. And that emotion is reflective of other kinds of mammalian animals, right? So dogs have emotion. I'm not so sure that cats do, but dogs do. There are other mammals that, that, that have affection for us. Horses do. This sense that we can have emotional responses to things comes out of our limbic circuitry. And so we move from reptiles to lower mammals and then even higher mammals. And then we get to what we call the prefrontal cortex, the top part of our brain, which for us humans is what separates us from the rest of creation. Now, our prefrontal cortex, there are things that we have in common with higher primates, like with the apes, with dolphins, with elephants. We have certain things that we can do that are in common with them. But one of the things that we are pretty much assured that dolphins and apes and, as far as we know, elephants aren't doing is that they're not actually sitting around and talking about the meal that they had last night in the forest. They're not wondering in advance, what are we going to do about vacation next summer? Was that an okay thing for me to do or not an okay thing for me to do? Now, now some researchers would say that some of those mammals get pretty close to what we humans do. But no matter what the degree of separation is from us and those animals, we do know that our prefrontal cortices, they help us plan. They help us pay attention to wondering what circumstances will be, what consequences will be for our choices. But one of the things that it does as well, it helps regulate everything that's coming up from below. My prefrontal cortex is in charge of paying attention to the body and then regulating the body, paying attention to emotion and then regulating emotion in that hierarchical top-down regulatory way. But one of the things that we can sometimes do is when we experience trauma, when we experience emotional distress, those three things in our mind, those three things of our brain, the limbic circuitry, the brain stem, the prefrontal cortex, they get separated from one another. Or perhaps the prefrontal cortex just wants to clamp down completely on the brain stem and on the limbic circuitry. It doesn't want to pay any attention to it because it's too painful. It's too overwhelming. And so I stop paying attention to my body, this thing that is not just unique to me as a human, but also it so defines what it means for me to be a human because it's the mud out of which I have been made that we read about in Genesis chapter 2. Moreover, we get to St. Paul's words in his letter to the church at Corinth where we read, do you not know your body is the temple 
of the Holy Spirit, for you have been bought with a price. Now, what's interesting about St. Paul's body's body language is that he has this interesting way of mixing his pronouns in his text. And what's so striking is that when he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's not just talking to individuals. He's talking to an entire community. And it would have been one of the first times that in the ancient languages, someone was referring to human beings, not just my singular body, but our bodies connected to each other in friendship and in relationship connected to the Holy Spirit. Like our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that we embody God. This was a completely different idea than what you would have heard about in Near Eastern religions at the time, Near Eastern ancient religions. Gods and humans, well, God sometimes fathered other gods by having sex with humans, but humans didn't become necessarily God in the same way that Paul is saying, we house, we, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which tells us that it's not just important for me to pay attention to my body, but it's important for me to pay attention to the fact that this vertical domain with my brainstem, my limbic circuitry, my prefrontal cortex, is always being deeply shaped by its connection to your body, to the other people in the room. This notion that I want to pay attention to the material world, I want to pay attention to my body and to the bodies of those around me because we are having effects on one another all the time. So I want to take this opportunity to tell you folks about uh, the Center for Being Known and uh, actually have Kurt tell you about the Center of Being Known. They have an event coming up and uh, I'm excited about it personally. Kurt, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the Center for Being Known and about this event that you have that you're planning. Thanks, Pep. Most of you will not be aware that for a number of years uh, in hibernation has been a small nonprofit organization called the Center for Being Known. And we exist for the mission of being able to create a space where people can come together and be connected. Anyone who really has an interest or a vested stake in what's taking place in life at this intersection between interpersonal neurobiology and Christian spiritual formation. And as it turns out, that's not just something that applies to psychotherapy or the mental health field. We believe that this place of convergence of neuroscience and spiritual formation is something that has application deeply in many realms, in fact, every realm of vocational domain that we occupy. So whether you're in church ministry or you're in education or you're running a law practice or an accounting firm or you're a carpenter or you're a truck driver, whatever it is, if you're a gardener or a farmer, whatever it is, we want this to be a space where you can come together and be connected with like-minded people who are asking the questions, how can these questions of neuroscience and spiritual formation speak into my life in practical ways that I can then take away and then apply this and actually even create a community of my own who can both exercise and engage and apply these principles in our own particular domains of life. And to that end, CBK, as we call it, the Center for Being Known, will be having its inaugural annual conference virtually on October 22nd, Friday, October 22nd, this coming year, this coming fall, 2021. 
and we would invite you all to be there. You can find out more information about this by looking online at thecbk.org, thecbk.org. We expect that this is going to be an opportunity for people of a wide range of different communities, different vocational callings to come together to be nourished in this way of neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation. In fact, we're going to have four speakers, including myself, four other speakers who will be giving us a window into how they are applying this work, one in ministry, one in education, one in leadership, and one in the field of psychotherapy. Each of them, uh, people that I know personally and that are really skilled at applying this kind of work. And so with that in mind, I want to invite you all to consider doing that again. October 22nd, 2021, our first annual CBK conference called Connections. Please join us there. Excellent. So you can find out more at thecbk.org. When you talk about the uh, how pain can separate those three things. Mm -hmm. And I think you're talking about, um, are you talking about emotional pain or physical pain, first of all? Right. Or both? We're talking about, we're talking about both of those things. Okay. So, so, um, you know, I've broken bones, right? Several times. Like I, I shattered my wrist two, two different times and, 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 you know, both times, you know, I knew it was broken. It was de deformed and, and you knew right away, but you don't feel it right away. Right. You don't feel it until, you know, what will happen is a little bit of time goes on and you start to break out in a cold sweat mm. and you're still not quite feeling mm. it, but you're feeling clammy and you're not feeling good. And you know, you got to get to the hospital fast. Right. And it's not for a while before the pain, you know, really hits you. Right. Is that what's going on there? That separation? It is. And we find that... This separation takes place in all kinds of ways. So, you know, an example would be, you know, a patient of mine who came into the office who was, you know, had, had grown up in a home where he had always loved science. But his parents, when he was growing up, his parents became worried that his love for science was not going to work out because he was going to a public school that taught evolution. And they got really worried about this. And they discouraged him from entering into a field of science. And they so discouraged him. These were people of faith. They so discouraged him about this that when he finally left home to go to college, he also left faith behind. But what was interesting, Pepper, is that the reason that he came into my office was because six months earlier, his son had hanged himself. <sighs> And this gentleman in his mid-50s was overwhelmed with depression. He couldn't function. He was a scientist himself. He works at, you know, one of the science think tanks here in town. And he was so overwhelmed, but he could feel nothing. He couldn't have contact in his body. And what was so striking was that over time, as we started to work together, he began to feel his grief, not just about his son, but about the life that he'd had with his parents growing up in which there had been this bright, radiant dream of studying science, even as a young guy who believed in God at the time. But this grief and this shame and this anguish literally 
he had to turn that off because it was too overwhelming. That pain, he shut off, but he buried it literally in his body such that when his grief started to eventually make its way forward as we worked together, he went from being just depressed to starting to have panic attacks that would show up as this shortness of breath and this chest pain. And of course, he's thinking, you know, I thought I came to see the psychiatrist in order to get better, and now I'm only getting worse. Why am I now having panic attacks? Well, the answer was because he was finally having access to where he had placed his pain in his body for the better part of 40 years and didn't really know that that was happening. And so we can have fractured wrists, fractured ankles. We can have fractured hearts. We can have broken hearts. And those emotionally laden realities take up resonance in our body. One of the most uh, meaningful books that has been written in recent time uh, called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, you all that are joining us, you all might be familiar with this. You're, some of you, I'm sure, have read this book. You're familiar with it. And it's a, it's a beautiful take on what it means for us to pay attention to how involved the body is in everything that we do. And so we find then that so much of what happens when people come into the office, so much of what we do even in our worshiping community is often disconnected from the body. It's often not paying that much attention to the material world and the way that we are connected to the material world and how paying attention to it and to its beauty can have the effect of forming us. But also recognizing that so much of our trauma takes up residence in our body, but because we don't pay attention to it, we just think that if we could think our way out of this, if we could talk our way out of this, if we could feel our way out of this, we'd be fine, but we're not. Yeah. You know, as, um, early on when I was, when I was studying acting, um, we would do a lot of body work. And there's a, te- a technique where you, um, sometimes you have to do a substitution when you're supposed to be feeling an emotion for something. So it's basically think about a time when you were feeling this, um, you know, anger, distraught, whatever, whatever those things are, and you substitute it, that experience that you had for what's happening in the play and you're playing, you know, so you can physically feel like, so you think about where in my body did I feel that, you know, um, you know, you know, betrayal, you know, I feel mm. it in my gut, mm. right? Mm. You can feel it right there. Mm. And mm. so, so you have to do some of this work mm. and, and, you know, not knowing the kind of, you know, the, how deep it went, right. you know, back then when, when we were studying it, it's fascinating to me to hear you talk about this now. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I, I love, I, mean, I think, I think even last season, you may have told this story. I'm not sure about, about the, the elevator story. You may have told that mm-hmm. story last season. Yeah, I like, did. That's such a striking thing. I mean, I don't know if, you know, for our listeners, uh, you, you all, you, you know, if you remember, uh, you were talking about this, that you came onto the stage after having imagined that the elevator was broken, right? Could you, can right. you re- redo this just, just real quick? Well, quickly, yeah. So I had a, a role and it was a very small role in a play. And so I had a lot of time to really, and I was a young actor and I was trying to learn and, and really sharpen my craft. And, 
And so I was encouraged to just really go deep with this. So every night I would imagine, you know, the route that I took, I was delivering groceries to this apartment. I was, would be getting the groceries off the shelves. I'm imagining the sounds and the smells and the tastes and, and everything. And, and my route to the apartment building, uh, my route to the elevator and my route upstairs and then down the hall to the left to the apartment, knock on the door, enter the stage. I'm going to pause you for just a second. Yeah. So you all are hearing Pepper say all these things. And I just want to, my, my guess is that even as you're telling us all this, yeah. I'm imagining that our audience in their own minds, which we're going to get back to in their own minds, they are also creating a picture of being in their grocery stores, picturing the, apartment building, picturing the elevator, picturing the work that they have to do, which again is a tribute even so far, we're only partway through this again, a tribute to like how we embody things even in our imagination. So, okay. So you pick up from there. Yeah. So, you know, just, I will say one thing that, that I am, as I'm telling the story, I'm picturing the exact same grocery store that I had put in my head, the exact same things that I was putting in the back, you know, it's all coming flooding back to me right. even now. Right. This is years later. But anyway, so one night I, I just came to me. I thought, you know, the elevator's broken. You know, I got there to push the button and the, there was a sign out of order. The elevator's broken. It's not working. So I had to take the stairs. But I, I didn't imagine that it was 30 flights up. But I did imagine, you know, I had to walk up a few flights of stairs to get to the hallway and go down the hall. And I knock on the door. I go in and I do my scene. Um, and I'm, again, as I'm thinking about this, I'm not, um, huffing and puffing or anything like that overacting or anything. I'm just, I'm just walking through the scene as though what I experienced was I had to walk up a few flight of stairs and, and do this thing. So I come off the stage that, that night and the director comes back and she says, first thing she says to me is what happened to the elevator? Oh my gosh. Okay. And I was like, <laughs> You know, how in the world, right? Every time, um, every time you tell this story, it gives me chills. Because I'm just, I'm so, okay, I, I would love to hear you just say more. What was that like for you to hear her ask that question? Well, first of all, it, playing that, that's, that one small role taught me so much because I had the time to do all this work mm. for the first time, mm. really. Mm. And I was, uh, mm. um, but when she asked me that question, I was kind of blown away. I was like, how in the world do you know that the elevator didn't work? And, you know, her answer was, you know, you were thinking it so we could feel it. You know, wow. your thoughts, you know, have energy and we could feel it um, in the audience. And I was just like, you know, so, so one thing is it, it made me realize how much work you have to do before you go on that stage. And it's, it's, you know, it's tempting to just, you know, learn the lines and know where the jokes are and all that kind of stuff. You just go in and do it. But if you really want to be, to go somewhere and take the audience somewhere, you have to do all of that homework, right. all of that work. So I'm guessing that we're going to get a lot of mileage out of this story. We're going to come back to this story over and over and over again, because it's so rich and so full of so many things. One of the things that really strikes me about your experience of your director's comments to you is her awareness. Simply something was happening in terms of your physical presence that came onto the stage differently that night. And that communicated something to her that she felt. And, you know, Pepper, one of the things that we 
that we talk about is that there are about, about 60 to 90% of all human communication is nonverbal in its nature, right? There are seven nonverbal cues that we like to talk about uh, that we are both cueing, sending messages to others and sending messages to ourselves. Those cues involve my eye contact, my facial expression, my tone of voice. And by the way, it's generally now there's new research out that would indicate that one's tone of voice is probably the most prominent uh, nonverbal cue that one uses to communicate joy, kindness, contempt, condemnation, the range of different things that we're trying to communicate. The tone of voice probably has carries more power than any of the other nonverbal cues. And then along with those, we have our body language itself, how we posture our body, and then our timing and intensity of our responses. So those seven nonverbal cues take up anywhere from about 60 to 90% of how we are being present in the world. And, you know, I think about Jesus' words when he talks in Matthew 5, where he says, you are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. Who lights a lamp and then puts it under a bushel? And I like to tell the folks that we work with in our practice that just your walking into the room illuminates it. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, you've got light that you have to steward. Don't screw it up, which is often what I'm thinking he's going to be saying to me. Like, you're the light of the world. Don't screw it up. But what if what he's really saying is, you are utterly illuminating. Now, in our world, we hear that and we think, wow, that's wonderful. I have no idea what that means. But typically what I think is they're like, oh, I have to have illuminating thoughts to share. I have to have illuminating ideas. I have to have illuminating wisdom. Like to be illuminating means I'm going to be smart and give people what they need to hear and what they need to know. I want us to pay attention to the reality that this domain of integration would indicate that out of Jesus' very words is that our very physical presence in the world dictates what people sense, image, and feel just by your walking in the room. You walked up with a different imagined internal state of affairs in your mind, and your director from the audience could see, oh my gosh, like the elevator is out. We are so unpracticed at being aware of just how illuminating we are and the role that all of our nonverbal cues, all of our embodied state are communicating, again, not just to the world, but to each, you know, to myself. When I cross my arms because I'm feeling uh, uncomfortable in a room or uncomfortable in a gathering, I don't just send a message to the people who hear it or who see it. I guess they wouldn't hear me crossing my arms unless, they, I have very, unless I'm wearing armor. Corduroy sometimes it's, it's, it makes a sound. Did you yeah. hear him cross his arms? Like, he must be pissed. You know, <laughs> I think sometimes if you're, you could hear some, you almost could. Watch, watch. You might not watch. Good. I did. You I, did. I did. <laughs> I've heard that like nothing before. <laughs> but Go when ahead. I cross my arms, I'm not just sending a message to people around me. I'm also sending a message to my very own body. 
Hmm. I am sensing that I'm crossing my arms and essentially without using words, telling myself, I don't feel very comfortable here. I'm not quite safe here. I'm not gonna be okay here. I am doubling down on my sense of being uncomfortable. And so we minimize or we don't pay attention to the role that our body plays in the world. And so I'm not really paying that much attention to it. I, I'm rec- I recall my uh, story when my daughter was about uh, 14 at the time. I've, I've told this story when we've been at Seasons. My daughter was about 14 at the time, and our church was going to have a Saturday morning kind of church work day. We're going to go to the church and clean up around the church and work out and so forth, all, you know, we're going to do as families. And of course, it's going to start at eight o'clock on Saturday morning. And we've got a 14 and 11 year old. And, you know, Saturday morning, eight o'clock, working at the church, like this is not, this is bad karma all the way around. And so I figure I'm going to be a smart parent. I'm going to start the Sunday before and just let people know, hey guys, next week, next Saturday, right? I'm going to alert, I'm going to, I'm going to give, make a long glide path to get this plane landed. And, you know, they're kind of like not happy about it, but they're okay. And I'm, you know, a couple times over the course of the week, I remind them they're great. Okay, okay, fine. Yeah. Friday night, it's 10 o'clock. I'm sitting, I'm standing in my kitchen. I'll, I'll still, I still, I feel like I feel it. I'm leaning up against the counter in the kitchen. My daughter is sitting eight feet away from me, sitting on top of the counter. Her mom's there, her brother's there. We're just talking. And I just say to her, so what time would you like me to get you up in the morning? And the first thing was, was the, you know, like, I don't know how many of you all have heard an adolescent, a 14 year old, you, whatever, whatever it is. And and then, and then the eye roll, right? The eye roll, like we have research now that shows that eye rolling is one of the most contemptuous condescending things that we can do as human beings to other people. And, and I, and so like, I'm thinking, and like, I'm not, actually, I'm not thinking. I'm reaching for the meat cleaver that's behind me on the counter because I'm thinking like, no, no, not on my watch. I have been the right parent. Heck, I write books about these things. I've been the right parent. I like, I, you are not getting away with this. And the first thing I noticed was my entire, like middle, my, my torso was just becoming like stiff as a board as I was preparing to launch across the kitchen. And it was something that got my attention. One of those rare moments when instead of committing a felony in my own house, I actually noticed and said, could we sit down and talk about this? Because, you know, and and this is the thing, Pepper, um, look, it's 10 o'clock. I just want to go to bed. I've done my parenting work all week. I don't want to have to like do more parent. Like, I just want to go to bed and get you up at seven o'clock so we can go to do this. And we walk over to the family room. We sit down and in sitting down, I remember my body relaxing just because I changed my posture because I was, as I said, like I was ready to launch. And as we sat down and, you know, I'm thinking, and, and, and my, our daughter, like who now is, 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 a, is like this amazing pastor at a church in uh, outside Nashville we started to have a conversation and because she's a talker and I, like I knew this was not going to last for three minutes and it didn't. But what it became was her being able to say, 
what a god-awful week it had been at school. And that the eye-rolling and that her tisking me wasn't so much about Saturday morning, although right, she didn't really want to go to church to work at 8 o'clock in the morning. But it was a lot more about a lot more. But if I'm not paying attention to my body, my mind will race ahead and take over everything, including my body, including the words that I say, in the tone of voice that is only going to create problems in the middle of that moment. The more we pay attention to our body, the more our body will be able to communicate things to us about what the Holy Spirit is trying to say. Do you not know that the body, your body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? How often do we not sense what God is trying to tell us because we're not paying attention to our bodies? One of the things that we have people do, we can, uh, you can read about this in Anatomy of the Soul, there is an exercise that we call the body scan. It's very straightforward and it's, uh, it just requires, you know, it, you can, depending upon the, the pace at which you want to do it, can take anywhere from about seven to maybe even up to 20 minutes to do. It doesn't involve any technology. It simply involves your sitting comfortably, allowing your eyes to close, a couple of deep breaths, and then through this guided meditation that we do, just walk yourself through paying attention to what you sense, first in your feet and then your lower legs and just going throughout the entire body, wrapping up with paying attention to your breath. And we invite people to do that every day for six weeks. And when they have done this, people report amazing discoveries, not just about what they sense in their body, but how how paying attention to their body connects them to memories of all kinds of things in their life that they have heretofore not paid any attention to. A lot of those memories being memories of trauma, memories of sadness, memories of grief, but also memories of joy and connection that they don't pay attention to, that they could, that could actually be helpful for them when they are in times of sadness or grief. And so it is a powerful dimension of our lives together that when we don't pay attention to it, there's a huge cost. But when we do pay attention to it, we find that we are on the verge of our minds being transformed. We often say, well, when I think about the mind, that like my mind is just the thing that we think about. But as we talked about in previous episodes, that the mind is an embodied and relational process, that the mind begins with the body, just as God began with mud, God begins with dirt and is forming us and paying attention to our body. So when Paul then says in Romans 12, verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, a holy and living sacrifice, present your bodies, literally. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But to do that, we have to present our bodies. And most of us, when I think about the mind, if I'm going to transform my mind, I don't really think that my body has much of anything to do with it. Right. But there's more for us to think about when it comes to those things. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about, more about, um, about the body and our relationships with, with our bodies and how, you know, that brings up a lot of things for a lot of people. Yeah. Just that in itself, like what people think about them, what the, you know, um, 
when they're thinking about them more in a even even how the culture affects mm-hmm. the way you think about mm-hmm. your body mm-hmm. and all those kind of yeah. things. You know, um, one of the things that we see in our culture, Pep, is this notion that uh, for some of us, our bodies have ceased to mean very much. They are just utilitarian. It's like I own my car, I own my body, and I can do, and I do do with my body whatever it is that I want to do with my body. Uh, No one can tell me what to do with my body. It's a thing that I own, kind of like my car. Mm -hmm. And so I I don't think of it as an integral part of myself. I just think of it like myself instead is the part of me that feels things, the part of me that thinks things. So I can dismiss my body as having much of anything to do with what's really most important. Or my pendulum can swing to the other side, the other extreme, and think that my body means everything. And so, so much of my life actually gets wrapped around my body. Here we have a culture in which we pay so much idolatrous attention to having bodies that are perfect. And in and amongst that, we also have challenges with our our emotional distress that gets wrapped up in our bodies. So I can have... Uh, challenges with disordered eating. I can have body image challenges. There are a whole range of ways in which the body now is central to what I pay attention to because it's creating trouble for me. There's so much difficulty that I have around my body. And so in some respects, we can pay no attention to the body. And in some respects, we pay a lot of attention to the body. And in both of those situations, we can end up attuning to it in ways that are disintegrated, ways in which make it difficult for us to both be embodied and relational at the same time. And for many of us, like we're swinging between both of those extremes. I don't just have to be one of, the, one of, those, one of those things. I can have both of those, both of those things. And so much of our emotional distress and trauma can get wrapped up into that in such a way that my body begins the thing that I either manipulate and use or the body becomes central to how I'm trying to regulate my emotional states, how I'm trying to regulate the parts of me that don't feel very well known. Because when I'm not known, it means there are these different elements of me that are not being included in relationship with other people by whom I'm being known deeply. One of the things that we sometimes will do is, for instance, uh, we, we, we're now at a point where in marriage, for instance, we minimize the role that our body plays. So we, we might think, for instance, I love someone or I'm in love with someone and that sense of love comes from my soul, comes from the center of who I am, comes from the felt sense of what I feel. And so when we say things or we discover, oh, I don't love this person, I don't love my wife, I don't love my husband any longer, It's as if I have a different set of feelings than I had five years ago, 25 years ago. But somehow, I'm discounting that my body is actually loving this person all the time. I help them wash dishes. We do laundry together. We've changed diapers. There's a whole range of things. We keep up the house. We embrace each other. We have sex together. There are a range of things that we are doing with our bodies in which our bodies themselves are demonstrating loving acts all the time, but somehow we have found a way to conveniently dismiss that as having any authority 
when we wonder, do I love this person any longer? When the answer is actually, yes, I do. And here's how I'm demonstrating that with my physical body. We also have experiences in which we feel like our bodies betray us. I mean, this is common for everybody because as everybody ages, our bodies aren't able to do what we wish that they could do, what they could do five years ago, 10 years ago. I remember the first time on the uh, playing touch football where a, a guy was young guy comes running at me and I thought I got him, I got him. And it was like, you know, he was this gazelle and I was like in molasses. And I'm like, what, what just happened? How, you know, what just happened? Right? Oh my gosh. My body betrayed me I in know. that moment. So I, I played uh, for all probably a, for a good, maybe 15, between 15 and 20 years. Every Monday night, I played basketball with a group of, my with a group of guys. And we were all about the same age. And so we were kind of like aging gracefully, like great, you know, like, like great wine. We were aging gracefully together. And on occasion, somebody would say, hey, you know, I'd like to invite so-and-so to come. And the first question would be, how old is he? How old is he, right? Because <laughs> if he's like 25, no, I'm not sure he can come. Because like, I don't, I don't want those gazelles like running fast breaks on right. me when I'm like, I can't get past, back past, the, you know, my own foul line to catch up to him by the time he's scoring on the other end of the floor. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. It's so humbling. We, I played in a 40 and over league for a while. I hadn't played for a long time. I took, talked a buddy of mine into going and like the second day there, his back went out <laughs> on him. I said, I'm, <laughs> I can't, okay, let's find some other way to stay right. healthy. Right. And so, you know, there are many ways in which our bodies betray us. Uh, you know, I mean, as you know, I've, I've lost three brothers to cancer and you know, they, they betray us with my knee going out or my back, but they also betray us in that we die early right. things that, that we shouldn't be dying of at those ages. But our bodies betray us in other ways too when we experience trauma. We can have those experiences in which people can end up housing their trauma in their body and they find that they don't feel anything. Some of you out there, as you're listening to us, you may have this experience of what it's like to have had experience, you know, have life experiences in which you notice that your body is numb. Others have experiences in which you might notice that your body does things that you don't understand. You suddenly find yourself being overwhelmed with panic. You suddenly find you, you walk into a grocery store and you don't know why you feel like you're going to black out. You have no reason for doing this. That your body, our body feels like it betrays us. And, and one of the things that I, I want to tell people is, you know, the, the mind, even when it feels like it's not working well, the mind is actually a very, very trustworthy phenomenon. And by trustworthy, I don't mean that it always does for us what we want it to do. What I mean is that it can be counted on to be sending us the messages that we need to hear. If my body is numb, it's protecting me from something. If my body feels out of control, it's because my central nervous system is trying to get a message to me that things aren't okay, that things are disintegrated, that things have moved from either a chaotic state or perhaps to a rigid state. It's trustworthy in that like, you know, when the alarm, when, the, you know, when that smoke detector goes off in my kitchen when I'm making bacon, I don't like it. I don't want it to be doing what it's doing, but it's reliable. It tells me what I need to hear. All the more reason why when our bodies 
being as important as they are, are not doing for us what we want them to do, we need to be known. We need to be known by others who can walk with us into those spaces, whether that's a therapist, whether that's a good friend, whether that's a cohort of people who are surrounding you with the love and the care that you need in order for you to be aware of how your body is trying to communicate to you what the Holy Spirit wants you to know. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so we say to those, not only what do you feel when we're in therapy, not only what do you feel, but where do you feel it? We want people to locate their life in their chest, in their abdomen, in their hands, in their face, not just in their thinking brain. You look like you want to say something. Is that, yeah, I have a question. Yeah. So, so when you're feeling, uh, what you're identifying what you feel in your body, where you feel it and all of that, is any of that universal to, to us or is a lot of that just depend, depending on our experiences and how we were, you know... Like, like, do people feel certain emotions in certain parts of their body or is it just individualistic? Right. We, we might say that some of these things are culturally developed, but we might also say what's really significant. I was uh, recently uh, speaking with a friend who uh, studies uh, ethnicity and ethnic responses to psychiatric experience. And she was highlighting how in Eastern cultures, when people talk about feelings, for instance, when they talk about shame or guilt or anger or sadness, they don't even talk so much about those words as such. They talk about physical phenomenon. They talk about sadness by an experience that you have in your GI tract or something associated with your liver. There's a much more deeply connected sense of my emotional life being related to my physical working out of that Hmm. emotional life. Again, bringing us right back to Genesis 2, that we are dirt and we are breath. And apart from any of those things, we stop being human. But again, I want to go back again to that that, uh, text and say this, Pepper. The text reads that God breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils. God was doing basically the kind of intimate work that we do in CPR. He was that close to us. God is not afraid of our bodies. He's made them. He loves them. They are acts, artifacts, icons of beauty. We don't believe that we are cities on a hill. We don't believe that we are artifacts of beauty, but we are here to say that in the process of being known, we come to be seen in all of our embodied selves. We come to be seen even in the middle of our traumatized selves that's showing up in our eating behavior, that's showing up in our weight management, that's showing up in our sense of our, our sense of physical betrayal that's showing up in all kinds of ways that we don't like and sometimes ways that we don't even know that we don't know. I want us to hear that we long to, our body is craving to be known in a way that is safe, that is seen, that is secure, that is soothed in ways in which we are seen as icons of beauty and goodness in the world. And this is what the gospel is really getting at when Jesus has these conversations with those people on a hill on what we call the Sermon on the Mount so many years ago, that you are the light of the world. 
you in your embodied self, your embodied self that is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who loves you and is speaking through you. When you walk into the room, this here would be a question for us, an exercise even as we go out this week. When we walk into the room, let's practice this week imagining what is it that people are going to see imagining, practicing that you are light, that there are people who are waiting for the light that you're going to bring in those seven different nonverbal cues. They're waiting to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure, and they're waiting for you to bring that. But we can't give what we don't have. And so who in their embodied state is bringing the light to you? Who's giving you the opportunity to be known so that you can also go forward and in your embodied self do the same thing for the world that you occupy? Fabulous, Kurt. Really great. Really, really. You know, um, I also think we should put the body scan up on the website, up on the beingknownpodcast.com. We can do that. Yeah, that'll be a great way for for people to get started with that. Um, And pay attention. Pay attention to those things. Pay attention to how you're illuminating the the room you walk into. Pay attention to what's going on in your body. It's a, you've given us a lot of great things to think about and put into practice this week. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And I want to say this too, Pepper, that I think going forward, what we're going to continue to do is build on these domains. We started with this domain of consciousness, right? How well are we paying attention to what we're paying attention to? And in this case, how well are we paying attention to our bodies and what they're trying to say? And as we continue to move, we're going to continue to cycle back to this question of how beauty, how the way we pay attention to what we're paying attention to ultimately leads to beauty. We are also creating it in the world. Awesome. Till next week, Kurt. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chap. Great to be with you. You too. Love you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and music is by Keaton Simons. If you'd like to connect with us, you can visit us on our website, beingknownpodcast.com, or you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. Be well, be known.